Hello, I'm GB hurdler Andrew Pozzi. And I'm British sprinter Adam Jamili. And welcome back to our podcast, Jamili and Poz, brought to you by Eurosport. If you're new to this show, then this is an Olympics podcast unlike any other. As we count down to Tokyo 2020, we'll be joined by some very special guests. And we'll bring you the very latest on our preparations for Japan. So welcome to Jamili and Poz from Eurosport. Right then, Adam, how can we not mention the Euros this week? How are you feeling about it? Super proud, obviously, how the team did, but we got so close to victory and it just uh, just wasn't quite there. But it gives me good confidence sort of going into the World Cup next year that we can really do something special. Yeah, it's been a phenomenal tournament, hasn't it? I couldn't be any prouder of the team and I think they've just exceeded everyone's expectations so much. It's obviously disappointing not to win in the final, but... You know, that sport, it's the highest level of competition and I think they've just been incredible throughout. So, yeah, really enjoyable for me. Yeah, they, they'll bounce back. I think you always bounce back from it and you use that hurt. You don't learn much from success. I think you do all your best learning from sort of, I say, failure and you can build on that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to see big things to come from this young Lions team, I think. So it's very exciting. But today's actually pretty special, though, Poz, isn't it? Because we're sat next to each other. Finally, the first one. We're next to each other in person Uh it's the first time, isn't it? We've done everything through multiple time zones. I think you've been up really early in the morning sometimes yeah. to get these recorded. So, yeah, it's uh, nice to see you in person again. Yeah, just nice to be just to be here and on sort of the last home Diamond League before we, we head out to, to Tokyo. Just nice to see some familiar faces, yourself, like just the rest of the British athletes and some of the international athletes you don't get to see very often. So taking it all in and enjoying that before obviously we go to Japan where... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a very different story. Obviously, the news of no fans is pretty uh, pretty big news. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, it's getting real now, isn't it? Last last meeting before the Olympics, it's, it's, you know, it's almost showtime. It's obviously been so good to see so many people in uh, Wimbledon and in Wembley recently. Um, atmosphere off the charts. And obviously, we've experienced that at, at Olympics in the past, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in London back in 2012. I mean, we've got to be honest, it's going to be a strange experience with no fans at all. You know, super different. Yeah. And I think in athletics, we've obviously had a few uh, championships like that. Yeah. You know, we've had a few like world championships in maybe countries that aren't as into athletics. Even Rio. I was, I was pretty lucky. I was in Usain Bolt's race in the 200. So we had a full, (laughs) but I don't think the rest of the, uh, the rest of the program, they, they really filled up the stadium much if I can remember. But, um, so I think, yeah, a lot of athletes will actually be used to it. It's just, it is a shame because, uh, if it is your first Olympics, we've been to a couple before, so we're pretty privileged. But if you, it is your first one, uh, it's it's going to feel different. The whole village life and stuff, it's going to be different. But I think Team GB, we always we always know how to pull it out of the bag and we were, we'll go out there and, and hopefully do Britain proud this summer. And I think we're going to see lots of medals and uh, some great performances and, and definitely some new superstars coming to the forefront of, of sport who we might not know before. So uh, I'm so excited to sort of see that. Yeah, completely. And I think, as you say, I think we're going to get inspired by other people's performances, which is always the way at an Olympics. You know, when you see a world record or you see um, some young athletes coming through with amazing performances, that always really inspires me. So although there won't be a crowd, I think as a team, we're going to give each other enough reasons to to be really motivated and to love this Olympics. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, enough on that for now. Let's introduce our guest this week because we're really honoured to have Paula Radcliffe on the pod. Incredible, isn't it? Paula is a world champion, European champion, a former world record holder in the women's marathon, 
and winner of almost every major marathon across the world. I cannot wait to chat to her. Yeah, I'm really excited. Obviously, she's had so much success and, and quite an up and down relationship with the Olympics. So mm. really looking forward to hearing what she has to say about that. Yeah, I mean, Athens 2004 springs to mind, doesn't mm -hmm. it? You know, she was expected to win gold and unfortunately injury was uh, a big component for her. And just a few miles from the end, wasn't able to to kind of finish off her Olympic dream there. Yeah. I think there's going to be some amazing insight about that. I'm excited for you guys to hear this one. This is us chatting to the great Paula Radcliffe. Where are you at at the moment? We're in, well, we're actually, we're, I'm in Monaco right now, um, but because the kids are broken up and we've got a house just outside in, in France, so we've kind of moved there for the summer and then that's the base for a complicated summer because Gary's going to Tokyo, not with the athlete who was meant to be going to Tokyo, but with three others. Um, and um, I'm trying to juggle kids and grandparents coming in and quarantine rules and all of that. To, to work as much as possible. So commentate through the Olympics and then in that crossover, I'm trying to get grandparents in to, to stay there. But You'll we're getting there. super busy. And you mentioned obviously <laughs> commentating in uh, Tokyo and that's obviously something we can touch on a bit later of, of what you've now moved into. But yeah, jumping straight back into the start really, what are your sort of first real memories of, of running and sport, I guess? Yeah, well, I um, really struggled to remember a time when I wasn't running um, because we were kind of just running around as kids there there weren't a lot of other things when back in the olden days when I was a kid um, so it was kind of playing outside on your bikes running around village sports type things my dad was running marathons at the time um, and so I would join in for little bits with him on his long run at the weekend we would take a drink meet him in the forest probably about 800 meters but <laughs> not very much I was joining in and then my best friend at school um, was already in the athletics club. She was a year older than me. So as soon as I was old enough, I joined Frodsham Harriers, which is where George Bonner was, who started mm -hmm. Sports Hall Athletics. So he started the Sports Hall Athletics because we didn't have a track. It was just a grass track. And in the winter, it was just mud. So we were inside and we just used to turn around boards all the time. And then when I was 11, we moved down to Bedford my dad, because we moved from my dad's job, my dad did a lot of research into all of the clubs in the area for the best kids athletics club and found Bedford and County, found Alex and Rosemary Stanton and they were pretty my coaches then all the way through um, and kind of just stayed settled there until I went to uni. Uh, and even at uni, Alec would drive up once a week and I would drive back down at the weekends. Wow. So we'd still get a couple of sessions a week in. I used to hate running the, the long distance, the cross country, the marathons at school, but I used to, it just used to hurt all the time and it was cold and the teachers used to just shout at you and stuff like that. But I guess if your dad was a marathon runner, that's sort of the environment you grew up in. So that's actually, it makes a lot of sense, that progression into that sport. But did you ever see yourself trying any other events or did you always know the long stuff was for me? The distance running was kind of what I was good at. I mean, when I was nine, 10, it was 800 meters. That was as far as, as we were going um, and cross country. And I always loved cross country. That was kind of like my first love. And I think that basis um, gave me the base for, for marathon because marathon's all about knowing your body, uh, knowing exactly how to kind of ride that line of going too fast and overcooking it or just holding it as hard as you can go for that distance. And so cross country really teaches you that because there's no time splits. There's nothing that you can use to pace yourself other than your own internal pacing system. Um, so that's what I, I really liked 
about that. Um, I used to do a bit of high jump. I used to do a bit of yeah. long jump for the points. I once ripped my quad doing a long jump a couple of weeks before English schools no just way. to get some extra points. Um, but I wasn't any good at it. And I started out doing judo. So I'm actually an orange belt and oh, three wow. green tabs. <laughs> really? From when I was 11. <laughs> And my son asked me the other day if I could do anything. And I was like, yeah, I'll show you if you want and put him on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm more bewildered finding out that you started off uh, in sports hall because that's what we did at my athletics club. And I started off in sports hall and any more than about two laps, which I think equates to about 100 meters, maybe just used to send my head spinning. So the idea of doing any long distance running on the boards is just mind blowing to me. It's, it's cool. I mean, when the, when the kids are doing it, they're just running at it full tilt. And um, you mentioned there about pacing. And the one thing, I mean, I haven't done much long distance running, as you could probably tell, but I did start off doing multi-events and used to dread the kind of 1500 at the end and and everything else. But as as part of my training, this is when I was kind of like mid-teenager, you know, I'd have to go out and do some longer runs, which was like 10 minutes, something like that, you know, a couple of miles. It was keeping your mind occupied was the one thing that I just really struggled with and, and being able to keep to a pace and everything. And one question that I would love to ask, because I think there's a huge mental component, obviously, to marathon running, to long distance running. You know, what are some of the techniques that you use or are thinking about in order to to regulate that time? Because, you know, I know nowadays a lot of people run with music, but, you know, so often you've just got nothing to kind of keep your mind occupied other than the pain of long distance running. So, you know, how do you cope with that? It's definitely... A, a huge skill component and some of it you've either got it or you haven't you can either keep concentrating for that amount of time or you don't and then some of it you really have to train so you have to train particularly for the marathon because for the marathon you've got to be so in the moment but also aware of where you are in the race because you need to know when drinks are coming up you need to know what's happening around you you need to stick to kind of tactical decisions but you need to check in with your body and you need to not stress about the fact that there's another 16 miles left to go and things like that so um i never never ever trained with music unless i was in the gym on running on a treadmill does my head in and i have to have music but outside i really use that just to focus and if it's just a recovery run my mind just goes literally anywhere and sometimes um you know when you're driving and you're not really concentrating and you think you got somewhere but you don't remember what route you took to get there and i'll do that sometimes on easy runs i think when did i decide to go this way but if I'm doing workouts, tempo runs and reps, then it's very much like concentrating and staying in the moment, but within the reps. So I would break some, I used to do a lot of six minute reps and I would break those down into a minute and a half sections. And that would be uh, about counting to 100 in my head. And I would do that. And then I would use that in the marathon as well when it got tough. So I just count up to 100 and three times 100 was a mile. So it broke the mile down even further. Wow. So you're kind of literally only thinking about what number comes next. But at the same time, you still have to check in with how the rest of your body is feeling. But that would help me to get the max out of those reps because I knew when I was on the last 100, I could really kind of kick it up a bit more and it kind of just broke it down. But I'd been doing those since I was, probably since I was like 13, 14, I'd been doing six and a half minute reps. And then I just gradually just up the number of them and up the pace of them um, and just got better at holding that time. And then Gary used to join in for like five minutes and then stop, (laughs) (laughs) which would really kill me because I got to keep going a minute and a half. Bit of a game as well. It's like a bit of a kind of, I don't know, just a bit of a challenge. So it's almost kind of like a little game that you're trying to play with yourself just to try and push it a little bit further without screwing it up. And then you screw it up in training, it's fine. But screw it up in the races, it's a bit more stupid. I would lose count many a time. (laughs) 
It's amazing to keep that discipline in a race where obviously the pressure is so much higher. I mean, I think I would struggle with it regardless, but I can understand in training how you can kind of go through, you know, those cycles. But how much harder is it when you're on a course like London, for example, and everyone obviously for you is going absolutely wild and there are spectators literally every inch of that course. Do you find it harder there or are you able to kind of, you know, replicate the kind of the techniques that you use for training? Um, I think when it starts to hurt, I found it fairly easy to replicate the techniques and to actually use the crowd too. So it even helps you, gives you a little bit more energy in the, particularly the last 10k. Cause when you come through Tower Bridge coming back, so kind of 20, 21 miles, the crowds are so thick. I mean, the old course used to go in front of the Tower Hotel over the cobblestones. Um, and then when they made it go back, so you've actually got two lanes of runners crossing. And the crowds are just so thick and so loud. It actually makes you feel a bit disorientated because it's banging in your ears so much. And then you go into a tunnel and that kind of helps to just calm it down a little bit. And then all the way along the embankment, it's just like a, a wall of sound. But it helps you because it just helps time to, to pass a little bit quicker right when you need it to. The hardest bit is keeping a lid on it in the first bit. And I think that's where it helped knowing the course uh, so before I ran it the first time I went down with Alec and Gary and we drove around um, in the car and drove around the course to look at different parts of it and then that first year I was very much kind of just racing it just really experimenting it and the plan was meant to be stay with the pack to halfway um, so the first three or four miles I was thinking this is feels really slow especially with the crowd and everything but I was trying to just stay with them and kind of just learn a little bit, I guess. And then I went into Cutty Sark and around Cutty Sark at seven miles, it was just really loud. And without meaning to, that had given me a little burst of energy. And when I came out of Cutty Sark, I looked around and I had a gap. And my dad always used to say to me, if you've got a gap, just keep going. Um, so it. then I just thought, oh, screw it, just keep going. They're all going to say it's the first one. So if you screw up, it's fine. It's just a mistake. Um, and then I got into the second half and then I was just playing in my mind what I thought Stephen Bren would be saying in the commentary <laughs> <laughs> really I mean you mentioned it was your first one and if you screwed up it didn't matter but um you didn't screw up did you no um, no I mean <laughs> I think I lightly. kind of really I really found my event to be honest um and I'd kind of we'd waited for a long time because Alec and I had talked about it and we decided okay when I do the marathon I want to do it properly and I want to really be ready I don't want to do it just because the physiologists and the coaches say that I should run a good one I want to really feel like I, I want to do it because it is a hard event and you never know until you run the first one if it clicks or not and I think winning the world cross country in 2001 was perfect for me because I really wanted to do that before I moved on to the marathon. I kind of wanted to go as fast as I could on the track. I never knew I'd run faster afterwards, but I wanted to, to get that cross-country one done. So getting that done, and then I think just after that, we actually met Dave Bedford in um, service station on the M1 and signed the contract for the following year. Oh, yeah. So I had that year to, to kind of build up towards it. Uh, and then, yeah, you're right, you kind of just go in, and I was just feeling it out. And then... I loved it so much from start to finish. I mean, I was running on my own, but I wasn't on my own because all the crowds there and all the training that you do is hard and it is on your own a lot of it. So the race is like a big party, really. That's kind of the easy bit at the end of it because you've got all the support there. Uh, and then because it was going so well, as, as that was helping me too. So I was just getting quicker and quicker in the second half. And I didn't realise how much quicker until I turned into the home straight, uh, turned around in front of Buckingham Palace and I saw the clock and I was thinking, oh, 
the world record is like 218 something, um, but I couldn't get there in time. So I was working it out in my head and I was like, no, I think it's 40 something. Um, and I ran 56, but I knew a minute I crossed the line. I, I said to go, right, we're going to Chicago in the autumn because I know I can get that. You have to enjoy it and you have to get something out of it. You have to be able to kind of lift yourself when it comes to the competitions. And if it, when you've worked as hard as you do for the marathon and the races come as few as they do, because you can only really do two, max three a year, you have to enjoy it and you have to kind of make the most of it. And those big city ones are like a big party as well, even just warming up and just hanging around at the start. Um, and then afterwards, particularly somewhere like New York, they're all walking around with their medals on for the next week. So let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. So obviously, let's go from the start of the day. You wake up at what time? Four, five o'clock in the morning to get ready for it the... Depend, yeah, it depends when the start is. So Chicago starts at 7.30 a.m. So that's like literally waking up at half past three. It's crazy. Do, but do you at least with that? the jet lag. No, I think I just thought, well, the jet lag, you're always going to be up for the race. Um, and the biggest thing is being awake to be able to eat, to digest. So you've got the food digested, but enough glycogen readily available so you don't have to be super awake to do that um i just kind of get up force some food down me and then rest a little bit and then just kind of get a shower wake myself up going to the race and then once the race starts you're always going to be ready for it and it helps going from the uk to to the us that way um with the the time difference and london's nice london's like 9 45 so yeah that's fine you can always just get up about five o'clock, five thirty, and just kind of look out, see what the weather's like. That's the first thing you do. Pull the curtains back and just check. Do you have a, do you have a favorite meal that you eat just before? Or is it, is it the same thing that you eat for training all the time? Or do you like, do you know what, I'll give yeah. myself a little treat or? No, never, never change things the day of the, the day of the marathon. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not so that much I would of a party, just like stick, yeah, yeah, afterwards, you can have what you want afterwards. Um, but before I would stick to what I used to have for long runs. So it would be, um, I used to have a bowl of porridge made with water with some honey and banana, some dark chocolate and either a coffee or a green tea. Uh, and then after that, just stick to carb drinks, just kind of building right up to the race just to stay hydrated and topped up as well. Well, you said you spoke about afterwards. Okay, let's say I'm Paula Radcliffe. I just, I, I crossed the line. I win my, my London debut. I win the marathon. The, so the next day, are you going for a run? Because I know you guys, especially no, the endurance, no, 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 they, they love a bit of mileage. You can't even warm like, down. Well, that's what I say. Like, are you, are you enjoying yourself? Are you going having a bit of a drink? Do you treat yourself or do you just, are you staying in the mindset of No, part? I used to always take off three weeks. It used to be four weeks at the end of each season. And then after the marathon, it was like four weeks off. And wow. then I started like doing like two weeks complete rest and then Tuesday, Thursday run. And then the fourth week would kind of get into every other day. Um, but yeah, it would be pretty much a month rest after after the marathon the only time when i didn't do that was after athens and beijing because well athens i just needed to run to kind of heal a little bit um and beijing i didn't feel like i wasn't really in shape to be able to race properly so i didn't feel like i'd run very hard so i was able to just get back straight into training there for for new york but after a hard run i would take that long off and just eat whatever you, the first time I, I ran one, I could not believe how much. Just, I was just eating for like three days continuously. <laughs> um, I ate a family bag of pasta in the ice bath after the race. Um, and then I washed Whoa. it down with champagne and chocolate and stuff. <laughs> and then uh, Gary one year in New York, um, I came through and I was like, I'm starving. And I went into the press conference. I said, just get me a plate of food. And he came with a plate of broccoli and salmon. I'm like, what? 
Is what the is this? Cake? And then when he ran it, when um, was when I was pregnant with Isla, he ran it. And the minute he finished, he was just like, get me chocolate, get me a Mars bar. <laughs> and you gave me salmon and broccoli. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit so devastated funny. that I haven't seen a press conference clip of that happening and you just flipping the plate and then just oh, no, screaming at him, like, what is this? <laughs> I think you'd have been well within your rights after that. How do you find it? You mentioned, and we will go into it, of course, you know, there's been a couple of times when it's not gone uh, really well and it hasn't gone the way you wanted. How do you, you know, rebound from that on the basis that it's obviously, as you mentioned, so much work for one event. How do you find it mentally when you're in the race if you can kind of tell like early on when you've still got a lot to go that it's not going your way or you're not feeling good? I think because Athens for me was different because I knew beforehand that the problems were there. To be honest, I think the problems had started about three weeks out. Um, we didn't know what it was. And then went into um, the Olympic Village and they MRI'd it and they saw I had um, a hematoma, a bleed between my um, quad and my femur. And I could see on the doctor's faces and they were just like <laughs> And so they needed to go and get an ultrasound-guided uh, injection to needle in to aspirate the, the hematoma out. Um, and when we went to do it, they, we couldn't get the ultrasound machine. So um, the guy had to do it, Bruce had to do it blind. And I was thinking, and it was really tense in, in the room, but he did it, he got it out and he put a cortisone in. But I think a combination of the cortisone, the anti-inflammatory that I was on, and just the stress as well, just meant that I wasn't absorbing food and it was just basically just going straight through me undigested. So I think in my mind, I was thinking, oh, it's okay because I'm taking all the drinks, I'm eating all the food, my glycogen will be fine in the race but it wasn't and I should have told people about it and I didn't so I think it was kind of all of that stress and then even in the ice bath before we went down because it was so hot in Athens I was shivering I couldn't get warm again afterwards and I should have known then that that meant I didn't have enough energy in my body and then what I did I still in the race you still try and wing it a little bit and still try and convince yourself you can do it because I'd done all the training I was in shape underneath it all and I just used a little bit too much I made a burst up the hill to, to 35k and then it was downhill from there. And I just burnt, I think, my last bit of fuel trying to make that burst and close the gap up the hill. And coming down the hill, I couldn't hold a straight line. And it's still a bit woozy in my head, like exactly what happened. I know I stopped once. I know I tried to start again. And then I stopped again. But I just know that I couldn't control. I, I was getting into the middle of the road and then I was back in the gutter again. Um, and I just couldn't keep it going, even though I knew I only had to run downhill to the, to the finish. Um, so I think that was different. I think in that situation, I couldn't really have pushed my mind on further. In the 10K, so I, I ran the 10K that time, um, and I had to go and spend a lot of time with the sports psychologist, Team GB, um, Steve Peters, to actually sign myself off to be able to compete because he was saying to me, look, you can't because you're going to have a breakdown if, you, if it doesn't work out in the 10. And he said to me, what's the worst that could happen if you can't race the 10? I said, no, the worst that can happen has already happened. And for me, it's worth sitting in the stands thinking, could I have salvaged something in the 10 rather than knowing that I didn't? So in that 10, I knew it wasn't there and I was just going backwards. And I had promised them that if that was happening, then I would just step off. So I did just step off there. So that was a conscious decision to, to quit, but the marathon wasn't. And then I think the fact that I got so much flack for that definitely directly contributed to to Beijing because in a normal big city marathon if you're not feeling it I think people do step off all the time I never actually did it because that happened in Athens and then I raced New York 
in 2009 and I had quite a bad knee injury but I couldn't stop I just carried on with that and it was it was actually the hamstring tendon into the back of the knee um, and it took a while to heal afterwards but it was okay but I think I would have stopped that if I hadn't have gone through what I'd gone through in Athens and then I think because it was the Olympic Games in Beijing was the only reason that I continued because I dropped out of the previous one I wasn't dropping out of that one even if it was really slow so that was kind of a, a conscious battle to keep going there even though I knew I wasn't running well and it wasn't going it wasn't going my way I just can't imagine the kind of the mental strength it takes to continue knowing those are the circumstances and this is gonna sound a bit odd obviously my race is only 13 seconds but <laughs> I remember after um after the 2017 world championships I was just devastated I'd been injured before and it just it, you know the rest of the season had been great but then I got a, a quite a big injury before the champs and you know, it just went so badly and I immediately was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to race the end of the season. I'm going to finish on a high. I'm going to, you know, try and keep going. But mentally, I just didn't want to be there and I was just kind of exhausted and my races were awful. And there was, I'd literally be like early into a race, just not even able to concentrate and just not wanting to be there. But obviously for me, it's like, it's over by the time, you know, you really have to think about that. For you, I can't imagine having such a big, you know, block of really hard work, you know, an hour left or, or anything like that you know, multiple miles to have to wrestle with that and continually try and push on. I think that mental strength yeah, is just Yeah, that is, you kind of just have to go to like a happy place and you just don't, people will say, I shouted something to you at 20 miles and I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear anything because I was just literally inside my own head somewhere just trying to, to get through it. But they're not many like that. I think other ones like, so I didn't realize when I, when after Athens, I, took the time off to get the medical checks and to work out that there was nothing wrong with my my stomach it had just been the stress I just we decided to go away to Flagstaff and I just said right I'm going to run when I want to run and if I don't feel like running I'm not I'm just going to stay home and eat ice cream uh, and so we just kind of did that balance there and then about two weeks out from New York I just came back from a run and I said to Gary um I think I want to run New York and he was like, well, I don't think you're going to get in now, but we'll try. So we called up um, David Monty and he was like, yeah, you can get in. We've got no budget left, but you can come run. Um, and Dina Castor had won the uh, Olympic bronze there and she was brilliant because she could have said, no, 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 I'm the American girl and there's no way she's coming into my race last minute. But she didn't at all. And so I went in and I never thought it was a big deal at all until I walked into the press conference the day before the race and all the British press were there. And they were kind of like, if you race this and it doesn't go well, you're finished. Like mentally, you'll never come back from it. And I was just thinking, it's kind of just getting back on the bike because I know I'm healthy now. I'm not 100% fit, but I'm healthy. So I just want to get out and enjoy racing again. And just kind of, if it happens, if I do well, then I do well. But I kind of feel like I can give it a good shot. Uh, but they were just convinced that it just wasn't going to go well. And I think that then fired me up even more because I, I knew that the the fitness had been there before Athens. And then it was just a case of recovering. So I wasn't 100% right, but I was close enough to, to be able to, to win it there. Is that something you've always been okay with managing? And especially in, in Britain, people can build you up super high, but then they can also be the first to bring you back down to earth very quickly and, and not always in a nice way. And like you said, with the press, is that something that ever really affected you? Or did you, were you always just knew what you were doing? You're in your own zone and, and just got on with it. I think looking back, and it's easy when you're kind of out the other side and you can look back, I just think I was really, really lucky. I mean, a bit like you, I had the family support around me. And if you come into the sport for the right reasons, because you want to race and because you enjoy it, 
there and you can kind of accept that at the end of the day also it is just sport and it's not life and death out there that really helps and I think the fact that kind of yeah I've been brought up with that I mean my mum and dad were both my dad would drive me all over the country to race like I can remember leaving Bedford at four o'clock in five o'clock in the morning to get up to Durham to race cross country and then come back that evening and they would do all of that but there was never a huge amount of pressure or expectation from them it was just support and he just you say you can only do your best and I think when you kind of accept that and you can not take the piss out of yourself, but just accept that what the press build up is a bit of an illusion. It's not real. Um, and you're not really that big superstar. You're just the same person that you always were. And so I think it's just it's just kind of accepting that. It's a bit like, um, so when um, Costco broke my world record, Dave Bedford was sat on the table next to me and he was looking across and he was laughing because we knew it was going to happen all the way through the race. And he's like, you know what, you're going to be the same person afterwards. And he was dead right. He's like, all these people will watch you as if you're going to suddenly change into someone different because you're not world record holder anymore. And he said, and then you can just like look around and you'll realize that you're exactly the same person you were before. Um, and it, it's true. It's kind of like we put so much into it. And it is so important and you have to do that. But I think you have to be able to kind of take a step back as well and get that the whole press side of it is very temporary very um, much an illusion at, at times as well and very much dependent on their interpretation of something and that's why I think the media have a huge responsibility and sometimes they don't understand that particularly with young athletes. That presence of mind is easier said than done though isn't it and I think yeah. you know you've spoken about that really well and there are people that don't have you know that family support particularly when they're young to almost just kind of rebalance them constantly um, and I think that's obviously a, a huge issue with particularly young athletes. And in this day and age, I think even more so with, with social media, with the stuff that's online and the accessibility to it. And I think I, I wanted to ask you, there's, I guess it's almost a bit of a two part question. You don't have to answer the first bit. The first bit is, uh, what was like your, your darkest moment, you know, in your career and really, you know, from a, a press point of view, when you had to read stuff about yourself or, you know, you're really affected by it. And then the second part is that you're obviously, you know, a leading broadcaster now in the in the sport and and doing you know a really great job there. And how does you? um, you're welcome? Thank you for uh, <laughs> for doing a good job. Not everyone does, you know. But True. but how does your experience as an athlete affect the way that you now do your job as a broadcaster? Um, all right. Well, I think I'll go. So the darkest moment was um, in 2003. So in 2003, after I'd set the world record. We, we actually drove down to here. We weren't living in Monaco yet, but we drove down for the Laureus Awards, drove into Monaco uh, late at night, got into the hotel, ordered room service, and I sat down to eat, and I kicked the bloody room service um, trolley right on my shin. And from there, I got some kind of tenosynovitis in my shin, and I was about eight weeks doing nothing, like in and out of ice buckets, and um, five weeks in that little, I don't know if you know the little room that Jared used to have in Limerick, on Patrick Street, he used to have this little clinic in Limerick and we used to stay above the high street, like above his, his treatment clinic. And I would literally just be up and down to the cellar, get the ice buckets in and out of it. And every time I tried to walk more than a couple of hundred meters, the tenus invitus came back and it was really, really depressing. And that's the only, because I'm not really somebody who's prone to depression. I kind of just talk about it, cry about it, throw some things and then get on with it. Um, but that time I was really, really low and finally, Muller got it fixed um, and I went in and he like filled my shin with loads of stuff and then 
told me to go try and jog on it. And I came back and I was like crying. I said, it's come back again. He's like, yep, this is the last time. He goes, now get on that plane, get home. 48 hours, it'll be gone. And he was right. And so for anyone listening who doesn't know, tenosynovitis is um, a form of inflammation around a tendon in the body. Athens was hard at the time. But once I was able to get back running, once I was able to get racing, I was able to, to get over that. And there's still the Olympic disappointment. But you kind of accept it. It's sport. You win some, you lose some. And like loads of things that worked out for me, world record-wise, world champs-wise, world cross-wise, the Olympics just didn't. And yeah, I would love that to have done, but I wouldn't swap any of the other ones either. So I just kind of, yeah, worked with that. And now I've forgotten what the second part of the question was. What was it, Andrew? <laughs> it's the problem when you asked a deep uh, first part of the question. <laughs> the second part was, um, how did the media play into that, I think is Oh is yeah, the, the media one. So that was the one yeah. that I was going to say. The media one was definitely worse after Athens. And I got people writing stuff. I mean, I actually got somebody phoned up my doctor's clinic asking for the results of the pregnancy test because they were convinced that I had a miscarriage in the race. And my doctor's oh, surgery wow. coming up. And I was like, are you having that? No. Wow. I said, that wasn't me phoning for any results. And that isn't what happened. Um, I mean, that's so scandalous. The press intrusion was bad. We had people like hiding in the bushes if I went out for a jog around Loughborough at that time. Like not many. Just I think it was just the one guy tried it. But it was just, it was just too much. And that was part of the reason for going away to Flagstaff. And then I started reading some stuff and people were saying that I only ran for the money and not been able to do it in the championships because I'd raced too much, which was actually the opposite of what was true because I hadn't run any marathons after London in 2003 in order to try and protect things for Athens. And I was out on a run one day and I was really upset by something that I'd read about gold digger stuff before and I couldn't run anymore because I was crying and I sat down by the side of the trail and I just thought this is stupid this is like stopping me doing what I enjoy doing and it's somebody who doesn't know me doesn't know anything and I think before that point I tried to say I don't really care what people say about me but I really was pretty bothered and then I just reached that point I thought you know what it's I know if it's true or not and going through that process then definitely helped me in 2015 because that was really hard when the Sunday Times came out with all of those allegations and to try and make those choices kind of not to release my data in order to not compromise the success, which wasn't always great, of the, of the blood passport and not to enable cheats to get away with it was pretty hard when you think, oh, well, actually, it might, it might win a few people over in my favour, but then it might not either. Um, so it was kind of just making that choice and in the end had to just make the choice that me and the people around me were, were happy with uh, and go with that. But I think going through what I went through in Athens kind of hardened me enough to be able to, to make that choice there. But it, I think it's a terrible, that is the worst thing for an athlete to go through is to have your whole integrity questioned and not to be able to prove it. Um, so you just kind of have to then learn to live with the fact that some people are always going to believe that you did something you didn't. And kind of accepting that is really, really hard. And I think I just try, and I try when I'm broadcasting, so moving into that next question, I try and at the same time, when people are watching, they don't want you just to be nice, 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 nice. They actually want a critical opinion on some performances. But I try and also make sure that that is valid and it's not because you know from the other side what it feels like as an athlete to have someone that doesn't really know anything, particularly if you don't actually know anything about that event. Like I feel a lot more comfortable saying, okay, they've really screwed up like motion. I've done that with his drinks bottles in the marathon because I know a bit more what I'm talking about there. Um, and in other events, I wouldn't. And I would always try and not be too harsh, but at the same time, point out 
mistakes, but not in a critical way. Because I think it, it's the athlete is always the person that the last decision has to come down to, and they're the person that kind of lives with that the most afterwards anyway. So they don't don't need it like really pointing out and gloating over. They just kind of maybe the viewer at home needs a little bit of explanations as to how difficult that choice might have been. So I kind of try and do that a little bit because particularly in in some of the middle distance races, there's like a split second to make a tactical decision where you put yourself in the race and you get that wrong and you're going to get that wrong a few times. But kind of explaining how difficult that is to make is what I'm trying to, to convey. And it's a little bit easier in that I'm not actually commentating as much as giving the kind of um, colour commentary um, kind of explanation side on it. So Steve's actually got to point out what's in the race happening and I'm more kind of saying why that happened or why they made that decision or, or trying to pick up different things. When you see the progression of the the marathon now, especially where it's where it's sort of going now, the, all the new equipment, the shoes, the, the 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 things that they can do with sort of tracking different parts of your body, like does it make you think maybe I wish I'd <laughs> I'd had my career ten years later or when when that stuff is starting to to come about, or is it that's just natural progression? How do you feel about all of that sort I of stuff? I don't know. I mean, I think without a doubt. It makes a difference, but it re- does really annoy me when I read people like criticizing people's performances because they had the shoes on. Because if we were racing now, we'd absolutely have their shoes on. So, and they're not thinking about the impact, particularly on young athletes that have run times. Um, you can't just say, oh, that's because of the shoes, because they will take that as an insult. Even if you didn't mean it as that, they're going to take that as, as that. And, there is certainly a part of me out of curiosity that was love to know what my 215 was worth in those shoes, but we're never going to be able to do that. I certainly know that they feel better and they help me now as an older runner, being able to just get out and stay healthy. They are phenomenal. I think the recovery part of it is great. And I think the, the track spikes, they're definitely improving all the time. I think it has to be managed. There can't be huge, big jumps, but evolution is good. I mean, the shoes that I ran in were better than the shoes that Ingrid Christensen ran in, um, and they were better than the no shoes that um, Bekele ran in back in the 60s. Um, and they used to run in like flat converse almost. It, the progression has to be better, and the general part of it is helping runners' health and is helping bodies stay healthier for longer, as well as helping the performance. So I think as long as you accept that and that it is kind of a different era, then I think that's absolutely fine. But just, yeah, don't criticize them too much. I, agree. I feel like I agree. that's that's spoken as somebody who's content with their career and happy with everything they did and and accepts everything that happened and therefore is not trying to devalue new performances because of technology and whatever. Because as an athlete now, I listen to so many people talk and there's almost like, not a hatred, but there, you know, there's a real uh, almost venom in, in trying to devalue it and trying to say, no, it was better in my day. And I just don't understand it. And I feel like... For, from my point of view, that's got to come from people that weren't really content with the way things went and therefore the progression they're seeing, they, they must almost, you know, devalue slightly. Yeah, or else sad. they're kind of only validated by where their performance sits on the rankings. And that it's also keeping a, gri- a grip of the idea that it is just sport at the end of the day. And where you are at the time in the races is probably more uh, of a reflection. Um, and then the other thing is that there's a danger that if people immediately put all of the performances down to the shoes, they're missing something else. And I think that's that's my big worry is that some of the, through the last year or so, and the 
holes in anti-doping that have been happening and then they're just getting written off as, as down to the shoes and I think that's dangerous I think that we kind of have to have to keep concentrating on making sure that that's that's done properly and that the the AIU and WADA are doing their job properly because we know it was here but I don't know if it's been the same everywhere else all over the world well absolutely I think I think touching on that it, it's sort of like we we've, we've all stood on the line and you want to give people the benefit of the doubt you assume everyone you compete against is clean and um, but we're not stupid we're not naive athletes and you know some of the time more times often than not maybe that's not the case and obviously you've been super outspoken which is so appreciated but from from athletes who who aren't willing to speak out because you've given people a voice obviously when you held the sign up about EPO like <laughs> what is your what I could have called it in better couldn't we <laughs> <laughs> but doing that as a current athlete as well must have taken you know balls huge strength balls. yeah <laughs> in the nice possible way yeah. I mean it, un- it underlines your commitment to it even from early in 1998 I raced in the European Cup in Paris and there was a French girl running she had like a red hairband around her arm uh, and I said to her Bondine why are you wearing that round around your arm did you mean to tear your hair back and forgot and she's like no it's um asking for better um anti-doping tests for blood- my willingness to undergo blood tests I said, but no one knows that. We need to make it more obvious. So then I started running with the red ribbon. And right then, it was actually hard because a lot of people didn't want to say anything. And I get that because I'm a big one for not accusing anybody personally without evidence. Once the evidence is there, but not beforehand, even if all the red flags are going up in your own head, I wouldn't say that out loud because I wouldn't want someone else to say that about me just because you've run fast um so i was a big one for that but i did think there should be better testing so we started doing that and a lot of people would say quietly yeah i'm glad you're doing this but i'm not prepared to actually stick my head up off the parapet and then the other thing is you couldn't control who did it so there might have been other people pinning red ribbons on that wasn't particularly convinced about myself um, and there was no control over that but going into into edmonton it was worse because Yigarova had actually failed a test for EPO, but because the lab had not done the backup urine test, it was on a technicality thrown out and she was able to compete in the 5,000. And we talked amongst everybody, all the other girls, about ways to, to protest it, and they wanted to sit down on the start line. I was going, that's not right, because that's messing up their race twice over, because they're already racing someone that they know is a cheat, and a couple of others that they might suspect, but one that they definitely knew. And then if they sit down on the start line, they're actually compromising their own race further. So we decided, no, we were going to protest from the stands and we would hold up the sign. So we did just literally like scribble it down and hold it up. And we had no idea really of kind of the impact that it would have. Uh, and then someone from the IWF got sent around and said, you have to take it down, otherwise you get thrown out. So we were like, OK, and put it down. <laughs> by then it had gone everywhere. And then we left to go back from the stadium and we got on the bus, Gary and me, carrying the sign still folded up, and it was full of Russian athletes going back to the hotel, and we were just like, oh, <laughs> that was bus. probably more scary. <laughs> <laughs> but that was something more scary. And I think it was more just that there, it was really not about me and Haley trying to grab that limelight for holding the thing. We were just doing it because we were the ones that weren't racing. So I think there was Haley Teller, Joe Pavey, and myself as athletes holding it up. And, and Zara Hyde-Peters was actually there because she was um, the, the endurance manager at the time. Uh, and we were all holding that. And then from there, I got invited to go and meet with the IWF anti-doping department. 
And they kind of explained to me a bit more about how the blood testing was trying to evolve and then actually with Jacques Rogger in Bruges as well. Um, so I think they were trying to move in the right direction. I do appreciate the work that they're doing, but it's just not going fast enough. Um, and there's not... When you look at the investment going into other areas of the sport, there isn't enough going into, into the anti-doping side of it. Uh, and it has to be the way that across the board that it's just people that are subject to the same standards. That's, that's the biggest issue, isn't it? And people, if, if somebody criticizes, you know, somebody, um, receiving a ban, other people love to say, well, you're just saying rules are the rules. But the point is for universality in a sport that has, you know, almost 200 countries competing, almost every country on the world is involved to some extent in track and field, you know, at the Olympic Games or otherwise. That universality and, and that interpretation of the rules and the implementation is just so important, isn't it? And obviously, as an athlete, you're outspoken about it. But also, you know, since you've retired, obviously you worked with Nike for a long time. I remember when, um, you know, Justin Gatlin, who has had quite a history with, you know, with drugs bans in, in the past, you know, was given uh, a new Nike deal a long time after his his last one. Um, and you spoke out, you know, about that as well with incredible consistency. But how is it to do that, especially when, you know, you're also involved with Nike and I'm sure have wonderful experiences with them and, you know, and know that they're, they're not encouraging that? Well, I mean, I think it's it's one of the things that I've actually always respected is that I have been able to say to, to people at Nike, you know what, I'm not that happy with, with that and I'm going to say this. And I've also, maybe just the way that kind of my dad brought me up as well, I'm going to say what I think, but I'd rather say that than say it behind someone's back. Um, I'd rather be actually open and just say, honestly, this is what I think. And I'm going to stand up for, for what I believe in there. So I actually did, I called Cap uh, and, and I said, look, I'm really not happy about this. Uh, and I'm going to say what I think. Uh, I called Dan and told them um, and nobody said, no, you're not allowed to say what you think. Um, they absolutely said that you could around Sharapova uh, as well. Um, and I think that then... It also worked the other way, I guess, in 2019. I think I took a lot of flack there for trying to point out that there were innocent athletes pulled into that whole Salazar thing that people were just accusing. And it really, really made me angry that other athletes were just taking the opportunity to point fingers at innocent athletes just because they were in coached in that group when there was no evidence against those athletes whatsoever. Um, and I think because I guess I'd seen myself in that situation a little bit similar um as well but it just it just made me angry that people thought they could do that especially when it goes around full circle now and you see some of the athletes involved in that actually now trying to defend athletes and you think well you were the one who said you shouldn't be associating you should be careful who you associate with um so i think yeah there's there's always that fine line and that's why i think you have to in this sport and you have to have your own integrity pretty straight and be pretty happy with your own self and if you're okay looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking, you're like, okay, that's one of the things one of the psychologists told me when I was trying to kind of get on top of things in 2015. If you can look at yourself in the mirror and know that you're happy with what you're saying and how you're treating other people and how you're living your life, basically, then that's, that's good enough. And you kind of have to hold on to that because you're never going to be able to please everyone else. You, as long as you can look at yourself and, and be happy with yourself and know what legacy you've left behind as well and, and be, be cool with that, I think you can move on move on from track and field and this sport because it takes up so much of your life as well people don't realize how they see like i said you they see the party they see the easy bit they see the, the race they don't see the blood sweat and tears every day every night 
because it's not just what you do at training, it's what you do away from training. And, and that's why it can be f- quite frustrating when people are so quick to judge a, a performance. And yeah. for yourself, it's two hours. For myself and Posse, it's, it's a bit less time now. Mine's nine, 10 seconds, yours 13 seconds. Moving on as well, it's, it's hard afterwards to kind of for, for athletes to transition to the normal world. Um, it's, it's tough because suddenly that whole routine is gone. And you're trying to fit into a world which is like Monday to Friday, and we've never done that. So things happen, and I still do it now. I'll be doing, I need to call and arrange this, and it's like a Sunday, and nobody's answering, nobody's doing anything, because they've got weekends off. But you, as an athlete mindset, it's not a nine-to-five job, and it's not just weekends, and you don't have, uh, not weekdays, sorry. And, and trying to transition to that, I mean, it helps when you're still in sport, because that kind of is the same thing as well. But it, it is, it's a really hard transition, because... Most people don't put as much into their job as you do into sport because sport is kind of a passion and a hobby as well. It's a isn't life, it? isn't it? It's an entire yeah. life. I remember somebody, I was trying to call um, one of the physios. I think it was, like you said, like a Sunday night. It was getting really annoyed. Like, well, what else are they doing? Like, why aren't they there? And someone said to me, like, you know, it's a, it's a Sunday. I'm like, well, it's not a Sunday for me. Like, you know, what's a Sunday? Yeah. It, it's crazy, isn't it? We've obviously spoken about a lot of uh, heavier topics and really appreciate how honestly you have. But what is the best moment from your entire career? You know, if you had to pick out one moment, what was one where you were just completely flying high and was, you know, everything that you ever thought or rather ever, ever wanted from the sport? Oh, um, <laughs> you can say more than one hard. if you want. Yeah, it is because it's obviously like um, the world records really were days when it kind of all clicked. But there was also the World, the world Cross Country in 2001 when I finally won that. That was a huge one for me because I'd won the juniors in 92. And that was the, the race that really kind of made me believe that I could maybe have a career in it. Um, and I set a goal then of trying to be the first person to win senior and junior female cross country titles. And it took me a lot of time. And I was second, third. I was leading like 20 meters from the line um, a couple of times and then just got past at the end. So to be able to, to finally win that and that day, I knew I was really fit. And it was one of those days when you wake up and you just, you know, you can do it. And I was really calm, but almost in a way that kind of scared me because I was thinking, I, have, I just haven't done it yet. I've still got to go and do it. But I, I knew what was going to happen um, in terms of one who was going to come past me. And then I was going to be able to, to get back in front of her. And it's the only time I've ever had kind of that confidence in the closing stages of a race to know that I could get back in front. And even so, I still look completely shocked when I crossed the line. But that was one of those days when I just felt like, okay, this is all going my way and it's all been worth it. All of those heartbreaking seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, eighteenths, all of that was worth it for that race. Uh, and then it helped me to, to move on to the next stage in my career as well. And then I think my 822 in Monaco in 2002 as well, because I just, I, I remember looking at the clock coming into the home straight and thinking, that's not right. I'm not running that fast. And, and then even though I didn't win the race, I don't think I, I ever thought I would run that fast over 3,000 metres, whereas I, I felt like 5,000 metres, I, I could have run quicker like in, in the right race and things. But I don't think I'd ever dreamed I could run that fast over 3,000. So that's why it was pretty, it was a pretty special one to me. And then, yeah, of course, the, the, the world records too. But it was cool, the world records, because in the marathon, you know you're doing it for the last mile. So you, you've got time to kind of take in all of those memories, even though you're still trying to push as hard as you can. You're still trying to like save a little bit um, of those memories kind of bottled up for later. 
That's crazy. I guess it's like the equivalent of Bolt celebrating in Beijing halfway down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And just having the time to be able to like absorb it because you know you're going to be able to get to the finish line. And so it's just a matter of how quickly I could run. So I was trying to pour everything in, but at the same time, the knowledge that you're going to break the record is, is lifting you up as well. Brilliant. Well, to finish, sort of obviously looking, looking ahead to Tokyo, do you have your eyes on anyone? Is there anyone that you think wants to watch out there for, for people listening? You think, right, it doesn't have to be track and field as well. can be any any other sports. Like, what are you most looking forward to, um, to watching? I'm really looking forward to, to seeing racing again. Uh, and I know that's nowhere near as much as the athletes must be looking forward to, to getting out and finally finally getting the Olympic Games going. But I think it's, it's going to be huge uh, in terms of the impact just on people, just seeing sport happening again. We were seeing it already with the football, with Wimbledon. After this pandemic, there are so many people that just need to feel good and they just need to be able to watch these stories happen in sport. And so I think I'm excited for that. I'm excited to be able to get back and work because I haven't been able to do that. So I'm going to be really rusty, but I need to kind of brush up on that and, and get moving with it because really last year, all I had was Monaco. And so I'm really excited about that. I think Dina and Kat, I'm really hoping that Kat is back to... 100%. Laura Muir, she has that capability and I'd love to see her get it right because she's, like yourself, she's just missed out that little bit as well. So I think maybe this year is the one for those ones who've just missed out a little bit. That would be great. Um, so I'd love to see all those kind of fourth, fifths actually come through uh, and make it this time. And then in terms of ones to watch coming through, I think Keely Hodgkinson and Oliver Dustin in the, just picking two from the 800s. I mean, obviously we've got, we've got Gemma, we've got Elliot and Dan as well. Um, but I think it's just the, in fact, these kids are just coming through and they're not scared of anything and they're just racing with a maturity that's like way above. And in 800 metres, that's tough because it really is an event you have to learn and kind of grow with and be able to, to manage the rounds, to manage the different ways that people are, are going to race it. Uh, and they just get in there and just race it with like a rawness almost but also a maturity that is really really impressive so i'm not heaping pressure on them in terms of, uh, of medals but i think they could kind of surprise some people going in there so that would be great definitely wants to watch they to see what they've done so far and, and uh, they're gonna have long careers ahead of them but um yeah i think they can really shine and, and make a big name for themselves in tokyo so I'm, I'm actually very excited to to be on the same team with them and and, and watch them firsthand so that's going to be awesome and get to know them as well off the track because i guess maybe back in the day t different events didn't mix but the team we sort of built at yeah. the moment especially in track and field all event everyone can sit with everyone everyone it doesn't matter if you're a sprinter long distance thrower jump like everyone mixes with everyone so that's what i'm i'm most looking forward to is getting to know them Adam sits on a top table with a velvet rope around it, so I don't know what he's talking about there. <laughs> oh, really? aren't, aren't you all on social distance <laughs> tables anyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's very true. That's very true. Oh, brilliant. And the other one's Callum Hawkins, of course, as well. Oh, I mean, mate, Callum yeah. in, um, Callum. what he did in Doha, and if it's going to be tough conditions like that in, in Sapporo, um, I mean, he's kind of flying a bit under the radar. We don't really know what shape he's in, but if he's close to what he was in for Doha, then I really think he's someone who championship racing, championship marathon racing, he gets it right and just gets his head down and gets on with it. Cool. Well, Paula, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and it'd be great to catch up again soon. Thank you. Really enjoyed it and good luck. Go out there and smash it in Tokyo. I could honestly listen to Paula chat all day. It's just fascinating what she was saying about sort of dealing with the fallout from Athens and, and what followed from that and, and how she sort of progressed. It's, it's just crazy. 
For me, it was so good to listen to her talking about it because, you know, I vaguely remember it all unfolding and seeing it as a spectator. You know, the press intrusion, the things that were said about her and listening to her talk about that and how she dealt with it, I think was really interesting. Obviously, we've both had, you know, different kind of experiences, but we can relate in, in some ways, you know, and how did you feel listening to her from your side? Yeah, well, what she was saying about dealing with that expectation, you, you are a completely different athlete when you have that on your shoulders. When, you, when no one knows who you are and you're under the radar, you go out there, you have a bit of fun, you, you, you do well, it's a surprise for people, you don't do well, no one, no one knows who you are. But as soon as you're an established athlete and you have that expectation, people expect you to perform at that high level week in and week out, it changes your mentality and it, it can be super tough to deal with. But listen to how she taught, she absolutely got to terms with it and, and accepted it. Completely. And this seems to be a real theme of, you know, the, the top, top sports stars that we're talking to. This is a big theme, isn't it? You know, I think once you get to that level of success, there's just no off switch. You know, we heard Brad talk about it. Now we've heard Paula talk about it. Two athletes just at the absolute top of their game, you know, feeling like everything they do is scrutinized and, and having to deal with explaining things to other people as well as actually getting on with, with being that high level athlete. It, it must be so tough. Yeah, what I did like is that she said that is what it's just sport at the end of the day. It's not life or death and it does happen. And she was she seemed pretty relaxed about like her world record also going as well. So she seems like she's made her peace with it and she's she's living her life enjoying it. I think listening to Paula, I, just the balance that she must have had in her life to kind of deal with that and, and keep that mentality is just so impressive. You know, we see so many people get carried away with, you know, particularly intrusion of, of the press and with social media these days as well. It's only getting harder. Um, and I think for her to keep that perspective and almost, you know, constantly return back to her roots, you know, she was talking about at the end of the day, it's only sport. I do it because I love it. And she always related back to, um, you know, traveling with, with her dad to all these different races and that really being the core of, of what she was doing, even when she was doing it at the highest level. And I just found that so impressive to hear. What would you have done in her situation? It was so interesting what she was saying about anti-doping and to make such a stand publicly when so many people were scared to or didn't. Like, is that something you'd ever do or, or stand up for? Yeah, I would. And I think um, it's definitely easier said than done. I think especially Paula at that time was obviously, you know, such a star. Her voice was so loud. But I think I really liked her philosophy, what she said about she never accused anyone without proof because she understands, you know, that it's very, people are very quick when they see a world record or an incredible performance to say, oh, you know, there must be doping involved, which, you know, we know is not the case. And when you're involved in the sport, you know, it's not the case. And I think, again, you know, I love the presence of mind that she had to almost give everyone the benefit of the doubt, unless there was obvious proof that was almost being ignored. And, you know, I think that's what made uh, her voice, I think, so strong at that time as well. You know, but how do you feel about it? Because obviously you compete against, you know, athletes in, in your career in the sprints that have had doping bans, have returned. You know, there's been suspicion around it. It must be very tough. Yeah, for me, I, I have to go out there and assume everyone I'm against, I run against is clean. I, I'm not naive. I'm not stupid. I know that's not always the case, but uh, I try to keep an open mind and focus on myself and what she was saying about looking in the mirror. As long as I can look in the mirror and be happy with who I see every day, and like I said, sport is sport. Like at the end of the day, I'm going to move on. I'm going to do. I'm going to do so much more with my life afterwards. But while I can do it, I'll give it my all, and I'll stand up against those who who cheat. And I always voice for those who don't want to use their voice. And yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to to sort of stand on the line and and give it my all. And whatever that gets me to, 
I'll be happy. Uh, I've had a lot of fourths and fifths in my career. I don't know, maybe one day. I don't think so, but maybe 10, 15 years time, <laughs> some crazy case might come out and uh, I might get a crazy medal. Um, <laughs> but it's not about that for me. It's just about enjoying the sport and, and I love what I do. So, I think for me, it was really interesting listening to her and, and the take home that I had was that she only ever focused on what she could control. You know, we spoke about the press intrusion, something that she has absolutely no, you know, no scope to change. And therefore, you know, she was constantly almost rising above it. And similarly, when we talk about drugs cheats in the sport or in, or in all sport, you know, at elite sport, again, she spoke about as long as she could look in the mirror and, you know, feel very happy that what she was doing was with, you know, the utmost integrity. She was happy. She was getting on with it. And I think that's a huge lesson that everyone could take away in everyday life as well. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's actually really nice to hear how, she, how she's actually super excited about the current crop of of runners that are coming up and, and especially distance runners. I know she didn't really mention us, which is a, a bit unfortunate. Come on, Paul, love back you boys. But um, yeah, I think uh, that was so excited to see. And I, I think, yeah, there's many athletes to watch, like she's already mentioned, and uh, there's going to be great performances put out there by the Team GB. So yeah, stay tuned and, and make sure you're, uh, you're tuned in for that. It's going to be hugely exciting. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see how it all pans out. Yeah, that's it for another edition of Jamelian Pos from Eurosport. Uh, if you're enjoying this series, please give us a follow. And we'll be bringing you as many of these as we can before we fly out to Tokyo. And don't forget to check out Eurosport.com for all the latest news, views and interviews ahead of the Olympics. We'll be back next time when we'll be joined by Lions winger Ant Watson. You don't want to miss that one. Can't wait to talk to him. We'll catch you then. Peace. Peace.